0: There's a lot of sort of forces that make it extremely expensive to be poor or not, to have not that much money or to live paycheck to paycheck in the U.S., which is a large majority of Americans. And a lot of it comes down to the way that banking has been structured from sort of a, a business perspective. Maybe you don't have $1,000 on you know, an average basis. You start getting hit with these minimum account fees. If you go below zero, you get charged for not having money. We solve all of those issues by centralizing all of that technology into a structure that allows us to capture revenue in a way that banks can't, but also serve the customer in a much lower cost way. My name is Trevor Marshall, and I'm the CTO at Current.
1: This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, And today, how Trevor Marshall created a financial product for users to get their money faster and cheaper. All this and more on Code Story. Trevor Marshall grew up in New York and has been living in the state his whole life. His path into technology was not a direct one. Prior to school, he was on the road to becoming a professional musician, studying at Juilliard. However, early on in his schooling, he found the same sort of joy he got from music in other areas. Initially through economics and combinatorics, and he was hooked on the math and computer science. Early on in life, Trevor's grandfather took him to the horse tracks, teaching him about the odds of a race. Fast forward several years post-graduation from Columbia, he joined Morgan Stanley and got really excited about Bitcoin. He even went to his boss and asked if he could trade it, which, of course, he was promptly denied. However, that bold interaction solidified a match made in heaven for future working relationship. In fact, when his now co-founder left, Trevor followed him to continue working together being really into crypto, they both wanted to figure out how to introduce these new value streams to the masses. In order to do so, they needed to build a banking product that made sense for everyone, not just the wealthy.
0: This is the creation story of Current. Current is a financial technology platform. The product that we have out in the market is a checking account, and we provide the banking services and the technology services that, that enable sort of the full experience we have quite a lot of things that are you know make our our product unique but really where we've served the most people is for folks who uh, maybe haven't been treated so well by the existing financial system and we act as sort of the onboarding mechanism for those folks into you know financial services you know we're over 3 million users all US based we're starting to roll out some additional features as well that uh, i think will start appealing also to people who already have access to decent services To double click on, you know, why some people have been mistreated, there's a lot of sort of forces that make it extremely expensive to be poor or not to have not that much money or to live paycheck to paycheck in the U.S., which is a large majority of Americans actually are sort of in this state. And a lot of it comes down to the way that banking in the U.S. has been structured from sort of a, a business perspective. The fundamental like banking 101 for all of the top 10 and top <laughs> really 6,000 banks and credit unions uh, here in the U.S. is you pay someone for their deposits and then you take those deposits and lend them out at a higher rate than you market it. Now, with super low interest rates, you know, no one's really getting that rate, but you're getting the services. So like if you open up, you know, a top 10, bank account, you put your money in, the checking account is usually like a parking lot. But if you have a bit more money, then you you probably have access to get a credit card, you're doing a lot of your spending there. And the checking account is really a set it and forget it. Now, as you start getting sort of more into the maybe you don't have $1,000 on, you know, an average basis, you start getting hit with these minimum account fees. If you go below zero, you get charged for not having money. There's a lot of forces that we can talk about that sort of put us into this place of, you know, sort of the existing state uh, of banking, but it ends up, if, you, if you're sort of in that second category, in that second bucket, where you're not really keeping a large balance there, you're maybe, you know, sometimes spending more than you have in your account because you have to make ends meet, you're paying hundreds of dollars in fees a year just to have the same service that someone who's a bit richer or has a bit more you know uh, savings pays zero dollars for. That's sort of why we exist and, and, and where we've really grown to this point. Um, we, we solve all of those issues by centralizing all of that technology into a, a structure that allows us to capture revenue in a way that banks can't, but also serve the customer in a much lower cost way so that we can really keep those types of customers as our first class citizens. I was really passionate about crypto. When I left Morgan Stanley, um, I did it because Stuart had left and I wanted to keep working with him. You know, I found in him the mentor that I really needed to sort of move forward in my career. One of the things that was really important to me is he also immediately understood why this whole Bitcoin thing was so important. He saw the digitalization of foreign exchange trading, which is very dissimilar to like equity trading, which is done on sort of centralized exchanges where you can see all of the activity. Foreign exchange is done from counterparty to counterparty directly. And sort of the digitization around that created all of these sort of fractured areas of liquidity and trading. When I sort of was showing him what was interesting about Bitcoin, it immediately resonated because this was the story of foreign exchange. But the reason that's important is actually the first product that we built when we started Current, we, the intention of what we're trying to do from the beginning and going forward is to onboard people into new financial systems. Either it's a financial system they didn't have access to, or it's a financial system which you can't get access to really anywhere. But the whole idea was, okay, there's this completely new wave of how payments are working, the way that money is working. And there's this emergence of this concept of value networks that live completely adjacent to the existing financial infrastructure. What if we could bring people onto that directly? And so in 2015, when we first started Current, we started building on top directly of these other financial backends, and in those days, the the best um, sort of back end to build on that was not sort of just a, a bank account was Ripple because you could represent dollars, U.S. dollars, in a digital way. So the very first product we built was a, an API layer on top of Ripple, which would allow us to extend these digital dollars based on deposits that we received. And actually the way that we received the deposits in the other days is like, you give us cash, we put it in a safe, we extend the dollars on Ripple. And it was like a really great sort of proof of concept. But certainly in 2015, we were in a, a place where there wasn't a lot of value of getting onto these networks. And we knew that in order to actually pull this off, which is to bring millions of people into these new types of financial applications, we would have to have millions of people to do that. And so we took a step back and said, okay, well, what what is it that is needed in order to build that bridge in the future? And what we realized is that actually the technology layer, which is functionally the system of record for the account balances, is the critical integration point for being able to transition dollars across different financial backends. And so this led us down the path of creating our own core banking engine, which was extremely sort of focused on being able to deliver at first a checking account product. And the reason we wanted to do that is because the checking account is sort of the fundamental piece of people's financial lives. It's really the entry point for money into most people's ecosystems. So we built that core banking engine, and we this is you know very different than what a lot of um, folks in our space have done, which is we focused on instead of working and sort of just consuming directly a processor who can handle all of the ledgering and all of the different account types and all of the different transaction types, we created that ourselves, and this was like a very challenging thing to do. Basically, we took that core banking. Uh, engine, and we put our first product on top of that, and that was our teen banking product. So parents could come onto the platform, they could add um, their teenagers, they could get debit cards for their teenagers, and they could facilitate sort of very convenient digital spending with a physical debit card as well. Um, And we put that product out first because it would be a natural wedge into a there was nothing really in the market at the time um, so we felt we could grow it without having to spend too much in marketing but b it allowed us to really understand sort of a multi-user experience which we felt was important for the future of what we were getting to
1: tell me about what you would consider the mvp the first product you built how long did it take you to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life
0: I would consider our MVP definitely the teen banking product, and, and I, I wouldn't actually consider them sort of two separate things. The teen banking product is just one of the things that you can build on top of the core banking platform, including our individual product and including products that we're adding sort of and features that we've added into the future. The, that teen banking product took about two years, um, but it wasn't a straight line. I think we, we came through uh, Expo, which is a startup um, incubator slash VC. And one of the benefits of going through this more incubating model was that we had a lot of opportunity to test many proofs of concepts. So, you know, early on, we had that ripple proof of concept. We then, you know, took that API and pl- started plugging into, okay, what if it's just a digital wallet that you can interact with via API? And we started creating integrations into Slack so you could pay people on Slack and Instagram and a bunch of other sort of messenger apps, which, you know, if you <laughs> if you remember 2016, chatbots were, were really hot. And so we were like, okay, well, what if we took this payment <laughs> API and put it into chatbots? But it was very much sort of this iterative process of like, okay, um, so chatbots, there's no monetization, you know, Venmo and uh, Square Cash to like kind of serve the peer-to-peer payments functionality. How can we create a compelling single user or like small sort of graph experience that doesn't require the full network to be present for it to be valuable? And that's really what led us directly to that teen banking product. And when we put that out, I would say that was really the first time that we had something that demonstrated all of the capability and all of the benefits of that core banking platform, and we've iterated from that point on. So I'd really consider that sort of our MVP.
1: So with that MVP, right, with any MVP, any first you know version of a product, you have to make certain decisions and trade-offs about you know, what you're going to cut, what you're going to include, and what sort of technical debt you're going to accept. So you know, tell me about some of those that you had to make, those decisions and trade-offs and how you coped with them.
0: Early on, it was far more existential from a company perspective than than where we're at today. Which is to say, we're constantly on the brink of running out of money. How do we get that product out and just go and prove that there is something that's meaningful here so that we can attract the funding to continue this journey? There was a combination of factors that created an insane spaghetti of bad decisions and quick actions. but only bad decisions in the in, in retrospect as you're going and like improving sort of these things, today we're paying off a lot of that technical debt. But at the time it was really like, okay, well this isn't working, we need to abandon it and go in another direction. Okay, this isn't working, we need to abandon it, go in another direction. And that resulted in sort of like, okay, there's a lot of things, they don't really make sense from like a pure architectural standpoint, but when you're sort of in that fog of discovery um, for that MVP, You end up just saying, "Okay, well, I'm not going to worry about cleaning that up because I'm probably not even going to be using that next week. And so that's kind of what led us to a point where by the time we launched the teen banking product, we went through, you know, in 2018, which was the year after we did the teen banking product, a fairly like large refactor to say, "Okay, this is the thing. Let's go and make sure that the way that the system designed is designed is like actually extremely compatible with the direction that we've now sort of established.
1: So from that point, then how did you progress the product and mature it? And um, you know, to put context around that or wrap it into a box, how did you build your roadmap? How did you go about deciding, OK, this is the next most important thing to build?
0: Sort of the guiding factor is the vision that we've had from the beginning. And actually, the, the vision statement that we've had is to connect the world financially. And that's evolved over time, but that's been the sort of core principle, which is how do we onboard more people into this system? Like, and how do we actually say, well, what is what is the thing we're bringing them into and how do, how do we bring them in forward, uh, further? The mission that comes out of that vision is like, what what is the reason that people want to come into this network and want to come into this ecosystem? It's because they're getting a better financial outcome. And so we've sort of established as our North Star mission for everything that we put on our roadmap is to improve the financial outcomes for our members. Starting with the teen banking product, what are the most important things to improve these outcomes? Well, very early on, we realized that onboarding for, you know, we're onboarding parents who are 30 to 50 may not be super comfortable with connecting their banks going through identity verification, we did a lot of work of how do we actually get people into the system well and then how do we have them sort of connect? So we had a tremendous focus on onboarding so that we could actually get them to the system. So just like bringing them in. Um, But then the, the features in teen banking became things like, okay, well, parents really do want sort of a set it and forget it. So we created the ability for them to set up allowances. And then they were saying, well, you know, that's not really the way I parent. I also set up chores for my for my kids and, and I want to be able to give them a chore in the app. And then when they complete it, I want to be able to pay it. And so we built that out to say, okay, well, this is the way that people are living and this is the way that people are working. Once we got to sort of a, a pretty good steady state on our teen banking product, we started saying, okay, well, to go back to the vision, how do we bring more people in? Not everyone has teenagers. How do we build this product for someone for, for everyone? And then we started building out sort of that individual product, which had additional sort of constraints and, and requirements, things like being able to accept incoming ACH, being able to give funds to customers before they actually were meant to be settled, which is our two days early feature, that's really been the guiding principle for the roadmap.
1: I love the feature around the teen completing a task to get paid. <laughs> That's a good lesson for kids to learn early. Uh, as a dad myself, I, I really appreciate that feature. Uh, but I really appreciate how you went about that process. Well, let's switch to team then. So how did you go about building your team? And you know, what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you?
0: One of the things that, that gets me so excited still to to work on Current every day is the people that are at the company, which is an incredible group of folks that are very much aligned sort of around the things that are important to us as a team. Things like being able to, to win together, being honest, analytical, creative. There's a lot of these attributes that we look for in our hiring process. And from very early on, we established a, a pretty strict sort of cultural guidelines. And during interview processes, we really measured them against those traits that we found we felt were important to us. And that's allowed us to scale from, you know, at the beginning of 2020 being about 30 people to today being about 160 people. And that, that sort of framework has allowed us to ensure that as we do that, the people who are joining add energy to the whole network. I think early on, the sort of requirements of people You know, it's different, like from an engineering perspective where I spend most of my time very early on, we needed people who could do a lot of things. Like if we have three engineers, well, you better be able to do some front end, some (laughs) and some back end and, and and be able to sort of write your own specs and sort of work in a more chaotic manner because there is no other structure for you to have. And as we've matured, we've started attracting people who come from like an amazing wealth of experience who really know how to do things right and know how to leverage larger and larger teams. And for me personally, besides Morgan Stanley, like this is my first job experience, right? I've been doing this for seven years. So I've been learning all of this stuff as as I've gone along, too. Um, And it's really, really cool to start like just learning from the people that we're hiring um, and, and really like sort of growing myself along the way it's been it's been tremendously rewarding well let's talk about
1: scale so did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or are you fighting this as you grow and gain traction
0: we've done a lot in the last year in particular to actually scale the technology itself and there's a lot of components to scale there's scale in the way that you do your internal development process, there's scale in the way that you do marketing, there's scale in the way that you, you know, manage an office full of folks. Um, But if we zoom in sort of on the technical scale, I think 2020 for digital financial services, there was a a very large sort of tailwind because you had people starting to realize, oh, I don't need to go into a branch. I can actually, uh, you know, sign up for everything that I need purely through an app and additionally there was sort of all of the government stimulus and, and unemployment benefits which required a place to actually send those funds and so we had a explosion in user growth and so we got in a into a position where the system we had had to evolve because we were now doing 20x sort of the volume in a, in a six-month period and so we had to make a lot of very explicit Choices, which some of these long-term architectural changes took a year to complete, because they had to be done in parallel with other items, and you know, with with the whole platform moving forward. I think now I'm I'm very happy to say that we're in a place that if we got another 20x, we 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 would just you know take it uh, amazingly well, and I can actually prove that with numbers it did come at a heavy cost of thinking really rethinking the way that the the platform scaled from the the huge increase in load that we had makes sense
1: with the you know the change in you know social or economical dynamics people going to more digital banking or realizing they don't have to go to a branch Uh, giving you a big boost there. Tell me about some of those parallel projects you had to do. So in my head, I'm thinking you've got features to build and you also have to sort of adjust or uh, rethink the foundation of the house. Like you're putting windows on the house while you're also doing foundation work. So walk me through some of those
0: you know one of the ones that i think is is extremely tangible and it's something that probably a lot of engineers have have gone through is is moving from the idea of vertical scale to horizontal scale when you're building a database for example there is a very explicit choice that needs to be made into how you want to be able to scale that out and based on your access patterns, based on sort of the performance requirements. One of the critical pieces that we have is the system of records, so the actual ledger. And the way that ledger is constructed is you have a series of events that happen. So for example, in, in your current account, um, you get paid from, uh, from your employer. The first thing we ledger is sort of a recognition of the transaction which is sort of like the init of that transaction. And then we record the funds availability of that transaction, which is sort of the settle of that transaction. And those two documents come together to form a single statement line from the customer's perspective. So when you go into the app, you say, oh, I got paid by, you know, Finco Services Inc., which is current. Then when you go to Starbucks, take out your current debit card. When you pay, we first record sort of the initial authorization. Then we receive sort of two days later, a settlement message, which we also record. And then those things come together to form a single statement line. This document-driven sort of event-sourced approach is the only reliable way to build a a ledger, a financial ledger, because you have to be able to say, How do I get to what my balance is today? Because I would say one of our primary products that we sell is a balance. It's the ability to store money. The way that we built the document database, and really I shouldn't blame anyone else except for myself here, is in a vertically scaled way, which is all of those documents were in particular going into a MongoDB cluster that was not sharded. The challenge with vertical scale is you have to increase the machine size as you add more transactions. And that works up until you literally exceed the the largest machine size on the platforms that, you know, where we're hosting these things. We are hosted on GCP and our Mongo cluster runs there. And there is a maximum to how large of a machine you can run. And so we had to make a re-architecture of the ledger to move it into a shard compatible format. And so the way that we did that was we created a sharded cluster we revisited sort of all of the API contracts that we had in place. So, the way you had to query it, the way you had to derive balance, the way you had to show history, we reevaluated that and we put a, an API layer in front of all of the interactions that were happening with that database. And then we replicated every single document into that sharded cluster. So, you know, all of your inserts are now going through this API can be replicated into the second cluster. Then we could swap reads over so we could start reading from it and then we could stop writing to it from the beginning. Because this is sort of like the primary thing that we sell, which is balance and history, we could not tolerate sort of like, oh, let's do a maintenance window. Let's turn it off for an hour, hit shard and hope everything goes well. It, that's like an unacceptable state. So we had to think, you know, I think a lot of development, when you think about sort of re-architectures, the underlying problem itself is not necessarily complex. It's the operations around making that transition, which are extremely nuanced and require an, an, an intense amount of attention to detail. We were able to pull it off and it was amazing to be in a place where like, okay, wow, that went incredibly well it was it was a a extremely like long process because you know the first thing of re-architecting everything through at least a consistent api layer was almost all of the work and then once we had the replication set up and and the reads cut over it became just a very like okay let's you know sort of put tests in place let's measure discrepancies between these two and it became sort of like okay just just take each step forward at that point
1: That's a great story. Thanks for walking me through that. It's it's quite an accomplishment. It's a lot to juggle and a lot to uh, coordinate. Well, as you step out on the balcony, you look across all that you've built. What are you most proud of?
0: I think the team. I think the team is like the thing that I really love the most. Um, Being able to see sort of autonomous decision making and the amount of creativity that comes from people is so satisfying where, you know, the first few years... Was very much sort of from a technical perspective on my shoulders. I was making a lot of decisions, some of which were good, some of which were bad, and some of which were like you know uh, just like kind of random because it's like okay, I got to make a snap decision, do this thing, and it always felt like in those early years that it only moved forward if I applied extreme energy in in the direction of the architecture and and, and what we were building, but now I can see like these amazing creative things coming through that I never would have thought of because these are much better engineers than me. Like being able to actually see that come to life is is super satisfying. In addition, outside of just engineering, I'm really proud of the way we've been able to sort of hire against those those team values because, you know, we'll do a happy hour and every single person in that room is someone I want to spend time with. And I, you know, I would say most of my friends are my colleagues at this point because there's a a large number of them and they're all awesome. So I would say that's definitely the thing I'm most proud of.
1: That is something to definitely be proud of that team culture, the hiring the right people. It's not easy and it takes a long time. And uh, that's that's fantastic. Kudos. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it.
0: There's infinite mistakes. I think the only way that you actually move forward is by understanding where the wrong things are so that you can sort of reinforce the right things. You know, I think already throughout the conversation, you know, you can sort of see, okay, we had to change direction or, you know, I set this up in in vertical scaling and that was like the wrong way to approach it. It would have been so much easier if we just like set it up sharded in the beginning. And it's it's hard to to point to any individual one, because I would say every day is filled with these sort of small mistakes, which end up being, okay corrections towards the correct path. Like one of the fundamental things that like I wish we had integrated earlier would have been the observability layer um, to the platform. So being able to sort of aggregate logs and collect metrics. It, it was not actually very difficult to do. I just, the, you know, when you have a system that's operating, the thing that's m- like most important to be able to improve that is you can't improve it if you can't measure it. And so once we got to that, that sort of visibility, we were able to make decisions much faster with much higher confidence. I would say that's probably like the biggest thing that I wish I could have done from the beginning, um, as opposed to, you know, a few years in.
1: Well, this will be fun to ask and to hear your answer. What does the future look like for your product and for your team?
0: I think for the product, one of the things I'm most excited about is getting to finally the point that we really started Kern on, which is being able to connect people to new value networks, which have been emerging for the last several years. In 2015, Ethereum was not really uh, functioning. There was no there was no ERC-20 tokens. There were no sort of second order applications that were being built. But starting from 2019, 2020, there's been this explosion of exciting financial applications that Current is extremely well positioned to bridge people to. This idea that the way that technology is going to progress going forward is built around open data platforms where You know, everything that's added to the system contributes exponentially to the value of the entire system because everything is by default interactable and composable. And where there's been the most progress has been sort of around financial applications. So uh, money market accounts, the mechanisms for securing consensus. There are all of these opportunities, which for the first time probably in history, like retail investors have far better access to than institutional investors there's a big opportunity that's emerging right now that we're you know sort of starting to plan our entry into and I've been sort of public about is how are we going to deliver these experiences to users in a convenient way that is still transparent and sort of lays out all of the associated risks and and sort of nature of the the the, the systems um, and so that's kind of what I'm really excited about in in terms of our 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 roadmap but there's also additional things that you know just expanding that ability to provide better financial outcomes to our members is there's there's many ways that we can achieve that so like creating sort of best in class versions of all of the features that are that are on our platform today and improving those um, is is also going to be something that over the next few years uh, i'm pretty excited to see what current looks like like i i wish i could just like teleport to 20, you know, 24 and say, like open up the current app and just like see it. Cause it's going to be, it's going to be sweet. And I'm, I, I would love to just like get a sneak peek at it.
1: <laughs> I, I love that. That's fantastic. It's a bright future. I'm excited about the product. Well, let's switch to you, Trevor, who influences the way that you work? You know, a CEO, CTO architect, really any person that you look up to and why?
0: I think Stuart, our CEO, you, I have to, you know, that has to be sort of my answer here because he's been so influential on the way that my career has evolved. I think having that mentor, you know, someone you can latch onto for your whole career is um, kind of rare, um, but there are many, you know, cases I've heard of where that has led to sort of the best progression in your career because you're, what you're really doing is you're 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 identifying the person and the attributes that you want to exhibit. And you are having the persistence of understanding and downloading as, as much of that information from sort of a team management, a sort of uh, risk assessment, a sort of all of these not totally technical skills, like not very like you couldn't write a book about the way that you learn about these things or, or about what these things actually are. I'm sure there's many attempts to do that, but it is just about being with that person for a long time. And now I've been working with him for about 10 years Um, And I've been able to sort of like absorb a lot of that. So that's still like probably the largest influence on me from a day to day basis.
1: We talked about a mistake, a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach?
0: The cop out answer, I guess, would be like, okay, well, we know what the product is. So we could have cut out all of the learning that we (laughs) needed to get to the product. (laughs) So that's like, that's like the, the shortcut answer, right? Which is like, okay, we know what it looks like today. We could just like build directly towards this and, you know, shave a year or two off of that development process because there was less sort of exploration that needed to happen. But I don't know if that's actually true because that exploration has established a framework for how we think about things going forward, like having those experiences of trying things and having them not work or like making a wrong decision and only realizing it's the wrong decision years later, um, like definitely modifies the way that we think about gro- going forward. So, you know, that that's probably like the cheap answer, but also probably like the wrong answer, because like who we are today is very much a consequence of the steps we've taken to get where we are. Going back to the beginning, technically, I think I would have um, definitely, like, thought about scale or the potential for scale much more than I did in the beginning. So, like, making decisions around how things needed to be for, you know, hundreds of millions of users into the future and thinking through that early on would have shortcut a lot of sort of technical um, things that, that emerged over time. Um, the piece on observability is, like, really critical. I think one of the things that we didn't get to, which is sort of the, the uh, one one level above observability, is, like, having an alerting system to when things are going wrong. So, like, creating a pager duty rotate. Like, we only added pager duty to our stack um, in 2020. And that was on, um, you know, on the back of, like, having automated sort of uh, measurement capabilities, um, it would have been really good to catch that or to like integrate sort of that full cycle early on because there things are gonna go wrong and very much like things just do go wrong and that's how you learn and that's how you improve. But getting that feedback loop as, as tight as possible probably would have allowed us to move even faster on those explorations. Um, so that's probably the main thing is like getting those feedback loops much tighter Um, And that can come from incident response, but it also can just come from, you know, uh, measurements across the org and thinking about, okay, what are how do we best measure if this thing is working well or not? And we got pretty good at that from sort of the product side, which is like, you know, pretty early on, we were doing a lot of metrics track tracking around funnels because that was really where our focus was. But sort of performance and 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 other sort of observability and having that trigger sort of improvements, that's things I wish we could have gotten to faster.
1: Well, well, last question, Trevor. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give this person having gone down this road a bit?
0: Keep going. (laughs) Be persistent. I think we are current is where it's at today because we were able to keep keep moving forward outside of just like um of you know having a great idea which is sort of table stakes and being able to execute on that idea which is sort of table stakes you need to just show up and keep showing up and and having that persistence because there are going to be things that just take banging your head against and if you are too too quick to change directions or, or give up, you, you won't get where you need to go. Um, that's certainly been our experience and there's a bit of sort of survivorship bias, um, in that answer, but it has been the thing that I can see, you know, we, we don't need to be the perfect architects. We don't need to be the perfect marketers. We don't need to be the perfect product things with a product sort of we don't need to have the perfect product vision. What we need to do is like consistently going through the process of of improving the product, understanding what could be better, and just keep improving, keep moving forward. That's the thing that makes has made Current successful.
1: That's great advice. Well, Trevor, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Current.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
1: And this concludes another chapter of Code Story.